Amen. Uh, happy Martin Luther King weekend for those in the education system like myself out there in my other job. Happy three-day weekend. It's a very uh, wonderful time. Uh, this is like the last break we get until like April or something. So uh, trying to really rejoice in that experience. Uh, every time I watch that opening speech, as we saw Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, I'd say I probably have seen it 20 times in my life. And I am still moved every time I see it. It provokes something inside of me. I think it's like a combination of passion, drive, maybe a little like anger and frustration at what isn't true yet, but also hope. I feel hope after I hearing that. And that's no small thing, feeling hope. To be transparent, over the last several years, I have often struggled to find hope about the world. There's plenty of things in my own life, people I love that I find hopeful about, but when I think about the big picture of the world, I so often find myself lacking in hope. And so anything like the I have a dream speech that pulls my, that out of me, makes me look at the world, makes me think about what's happening, I feel like I want to keep coming back to it. I want to lean into it. You know, I can actually remember a time in my life, not so long ago, where I think I was feeling more hopeful on a daily basis. It was something that I felt easier to access hope for me about the world. It was a time, as MLK once said, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards just justice. There was a point where I felt like we were really bending towards justice. You know, it was the fall of 2014, uh, it was shortly after the shooting of Michael Brown and all that had happened in and around Ferguson, Missouri. You know, there was so much pain and outrage at the end of that summer, but it felt like it was a point, like things in America were maybe getting ready to change. You know, myself personally, at that fall, I think that's September, the sh uh, all that happened in Ferguson happened in August, and that September, I remember I did an implicit bias training for the first time where we weren't necessarily arguing over whether we're racist or not or defending that, but it was just a given that we all have implicit bias around race. That racist or not wasn't really the right question. It was where does racism exist in each of us? Because it does. You know, I was reading about things happening around the country where police departments were doing implicit bias trainings, trying to help their officers see how their own unconscious biases might be betraying them, particularly in high stress situations. You know, I was seeing districts in this area, around Chicago, school districts that were doing trainings with their teachers to help them understand how their implicit bias was affecting their classrooms and the ways that teachers and school systems can unconsciously perpetuate racial inequality and in outcomes. You know, and I felt filled with hope in this moment, that fall of 2014. As I was experiencing it, I was reading all of these things, I felt like maybe the cry of injustice had gotten loud enough that we were ready to have a different kind of conversation or ready to move forward in a different way. That we weren't there yet, of course, but maybe we were ready to move towards that arc of justice. I had hope that we might really be moving in the direction of a more just and equitable society. And I must say, sadly, since that high point personally, maybe 2014 was a really rough year for you. Maybe that wasn't a high point of hope. But for me, it was. 
I have felt a steady disappointment since, a steady diet of experiencing a lacking of what I hope to see in the world. You know, the high point, or I should say low point of my disappointment happened shortly after Charlottesville had happened. And it wasn't just seeing what happened in Charlottesville, but seeing the public debate afterwards. You know, I was like, well, I was like you know, we were just acknowledging racism. We were beginning to have the conversation about implicit bias. And it felt like we're going back to discussing whether being giving Nazi salutes or walking around with uh, lynch mob-esque torches was suddenly okay or not. And then I started to see more and more a narrative popping up and gaining steam, particularly within the Christian circles that I was aware of. This narrative that Christian straight white men in our country were persecuted. I found this getting traction. And all of this just felt so deeply disappointing to me. And since then, it's not exactly like the public discourse has fueled my hope. You know, my deep disappointment of where we have come has often left me feeling cynical. Probably my most common prayer is asking for hope. I've often found myself having to battle off apathy. Like some of the dreams that I once had about what we could be as a country, as a world, were naivety. That I should just let go, I should lower my expectations. That I should know that humans are just broken people that that dream was just the silly thoughts of somebody that wasn't fully aware of the world. And it's from this place where I struggle to find hope that this week I again return to our current series, looking at the Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament. The prophetic writings of the Old Testament were written over hundreds of years in the midst of the rise and fall of Israel before the time of Jerusalem. I think about the best way to approach these Old Testament writings is as resistance literature. It's probably the closest thing us as 21st century Americans can get into the space of their original readers and writers. And I think it's important to engage this intentionally and think about the frame of it because if you're a person like me who grew up with privilege, if you're a person like me that grew up in the context and the ways that the status quo served me in my life, and you also grew up exposed to the Bible, like I did, and you also grew up exposed to the Hebrew prophets, at times when you read the language of the prophets, the violence, the aggression, it sometimes feels morally hard to swallow. You know, and the chances are, this is because in a world of privilege, those prophets were probably, if you were in a church setting, were often flattened out to create like an object lesson, equating issues of war and suffering and prejudice and violence to how we treat our coworkers, how we engage with music. And not to say object lessons are bad. I fully heartily believe if you walk away from anything and it makes you reflect on how to live a life that is fuller, deeper, and more whole is worthwhile. But if that is your lens, and then you read the threats attached to the intensity of the biblical prophets, then they feel a little out of proportion. I actually think it is directly this approach that has led to the graining traction of Christian men feeling like they're under attack. It's this kind of thing that makes feel like the kind of cups Starbucks uses is somehow a culture war. 
It is taking object lessons and applying the intensity of language that was meant for issues of violence, war, and oppression and applying it to the mundane of a privileged life. And so, I think when we begin to look at this as resistance literature, and we begin to realize that none of the prophets were coming from places of privilege, none of the prophets were coming from places of power, they were operating in places of oppression, operating in places of injustice going unchecked. And seeing them through the lens of resistance literature, reading from that perspective, I think it unlocks the moral courage and timelessness of them for America today. All of which I find so helpful in the midst of how I often feel, struggling to find hope. Because like all good resistance literature, the prophets call out evil, they call out injustice, they call out the brokenness of the status quo, condemning the wrong they see around them, which I can relate to, but they speak oh so helpfully of a hope for the future that what we see around us does not rob us from what might be. And so I want to continue our foray into the prophets, asking together how the resistance literature of the ancient Hebrew people might help us today in a world that so often kills off our hope. And today I want to continue by looking at the prophet Haggai. There's a little context that I think will help us in understanding the prophet Haggai. So about 16 years before he writes this, the Hebrew people had just returned from a generation in exile. If you were with us last week, we were, we were talking about in Obadiah how they had, Jerusalem had been sacked and the Israelites had been taken off into Babylon. Well, they have just returned and began rebuilding the temple which had been destroyed by the Babylonians. This temple, which not just worked as like a function for worship, but worked as the epicenter of their cultural, social, religious life. It was core to their identity, who they were as people. It was the place where their God dwelled. So within a few years of returning, they had completed the temple's foundations. But with the foundations being complete, they halted construction for two reasons. The first is there were some corrupt people who found their way into power, who undermined the efforts of rebuilding the temple. And then two, there had been a slow decline in enthusiasm amongst the Hebrews about the new temple. Because seeing the foundation, seeing it begin to come to life, they found it deeply disappointing compared to the grandeur of the original temple. The original temple being that that Solomon built. The temple that is often described as one of the most glorious constructions ever done by man. And so in their disappointment, defeated by corruption, they stopped. And the temple sat unfinished for 16 years, untouched. And this is when Haggai enters the picture, addressing the people of Israel whose disappointment has led to apathy. And his prophetic writing is meant to offer a consolation for their disappointment and then renew Israel's passion and hope in order for them to finish the temple. 
So reading from Haggai 2. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem like nothing? Talking about who of you remembers how wonderful and glorious the original temple was. And we look here. This thing is pitiful. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, who is the leader in the area, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains with you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of its former house. This thing that looks so disappointing to you, I'm telling you, it will be greater than the original. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. When I read Haggai's words, I resonate with the kind of disappointment that he talks about here. I think about how the Hebrews must have felt returning to Jerusalem, eager, excited to rebuild the temple with big dreams and aspirations, not just for what the temple could be. Again, the temple in a lot of ways was a symbol for who they were. Dreams and aspirations about what they could be as a people now that they were returned home. And I can resonate with how it would feel to begin rebuilding only to find corrupt leaders and bureaucracies undermining an effort each time they tried to move forward. Not only making the completion of the temple difficult, but eroding the dreams they had of what their society could be. Corrupt political processes and bureaucracies, in my experience, have a special and unique way of wearing us down, stealing hope from us, making us feel silly and cynical to have such dreams in the first place. Like an hour in the DMV proves that true let alone looking at the big pictures of corruption, the big pictures of like, what is the point in this that we feel? And then I think about the Israelites, disillusioned from corruption, and then looking at the progress that they have made full of cynicism and saying to themselves, look at these foundations. Like, is this even worth it? This new temple is nothing like the old. It's nothing like I thought it was going to be. It pales into comparison of what it used to be. Is this worth dealing with all that crap? Pushing through it all? And then just concluding in the end to throw in the towel. Like, it just doesn't even matter anyways. And there, the apathy set in and sat for 16 years. And I feel for them. I always feel like it's so easy to judge when you look back on people. I don't actually, I don't judge them at all. I don't know if I would have been any different. I don't think so highly of myself to think that I would have overcome such disappointment. I don't judge them, I get it. I think about the apathy I have felt 
about my hope for the world over the last few years. And here's the funny thing. I think we often end up in apathy without realizing it. It's not like a moment where like, I suddenly care and I no longer care. It's a gradual thing. It's the result of experiencing disappointment. It's the result of experiencing rejection. It's the result of our hearts being eroded. It leads us to being overwhelmed, losing passion, giving up hope on our dreams. And so when I read Haggai's words to these people and I hear him comforting them, reminding them that I am still with you, God is still with you just as he was with you when he freed you from Egypt and promising them that if you do continue this work, not only will you complete this temple, but it will be in greater glory than the former. When I read these words in my culture, there's just a lot of things that don't connect with me, don't resonate with me, don't speak to me. I have very little investment in any temple. However, when I read these words and think about how it would have hit them, then I think it may have hit a little bit like Martin Luther King's words, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The way that that hits me and fills me with hope. Something that reminds me that my disappointments don't define me. That our setbacks don't dictate our future that there is a hope for the future. And that kind of reminder is just the kind of thing often to kick us back out of apathy. To realize, yes, I thought we would be in a place that we're not. But there is still good. And I want to say this is not a cheap or trite reminder, but one full of real and hard-earned hope. The God of the Bible, the God who is behind Haggai's comfort and who is behind Dr. King's belief isn't removed from the human experience. This is a God who came close to humanity in Jesus, who knows hopelessness and disappointment, knows betrayal and knows suffering. A God whose pinnacle moment in life was facing, was facing death and overcoming it. And so I wonder here today how we can grab a hold of that kind of hope, the hope that Haggai speaks of and Jesus lived out and Dr. King believed in. How can we find the strength to pursue that hope when we feel disappointed in what is true, when that disappointment feels strong, when apathy has worked on us, maybe for years at this point? And my suggestion is actually the same suggestion I went to last week. And I will say, it is not a perfect answer. I wish I could come up here every Sunday and say, here is the secret key to unlock a life that is hopeful, joyful, connected. But I don't have it. Partially because I think it's different for each one of us. Partially because I am an incredibly flawed, finite person that doesn't always get it myself. And partially because I don't think necessarily the task of life is to find the answers. I think perhaps the task of life is trying to figure out and pursue it ourselves. And so I do suggest the same thing I did suggest last week, which is prayer. And I don't return to this idea because I've run out of ideas. 
I've done it intentionally because although it sounds simple, it's the thing that I have found that makes the most difference. And again, acknowledging when I say prayer, I don't mean the kind of stand in for do nothing that our culture often calls, like the sending thoughts and prayers in lieu of actually doing something. I'm talking about something we're doing for ourselves. You know, personally, I have handled and I've seen other people handle disappointment in many different ways. I've seen people handle the disappointment they feel about the world by telling their friends about it. You know, telling their friends how deeply disappointed they are and what they see. I mean, we certainly see it every time we open social media. People putting out there the deep disappointment and disapproval they see. Or often I've tried ignoring it. I am disappointed. I'm just going to ignore that disappointment and hope the Packers lose today. <laughs> but the truth is, none of that has ever given me more hope. None of that has ever broken me out of apathy. A Facebook post has never moved me to that. If anything, they actually feed my sense of being overwhelmed. They steal my sense of passion and vigor. And that's why I come back to this, setting aside time to pray for our disappointments. Pray for our hope. Ask God for helping us to see a better way forward. You know, there's actually something Jesus says about this that I find really helpful. You know, in Matthew 6, he says, And when you pray, do not be like hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. I mean, it's the reason I like that is because of the, uh, the numerous studies that they've done about social media posting and how it actually activates, the, I said this last week too, it activates the same neurological response that people get when they actually do something. Like you actually get, neuro, like if you were to volunteer with our warming center, there's something that happens neurologically when you are investing in the world. There's actually like a payoff of like, I'm making some of the difference I want to see in the world. But when I post on Facebook, like, homelessness sucks, I actually get a small little bit of that in my brain. It, I get a little bit of that payoff, which we have found through research undermines people's efforts to actually follow through and do something. So when he says, they have received the reward in full, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Makes me wonder, like, what if the reward Jesus is talking about is that soft, affected heart that can actually hope, that doesn't shut down in apathy, that can dream, that can be resilient through hardship and tragedy? You know, for me, the times that I most perk up and pay attention, like maybe the, I really want to see what the Bible is telling me here is often when it lines up with the other things in my life that I listen to. Things like science, things like psychology, things like understanding how our brain works. And this is one of those things where they all speak to the same reality, which is taking time aside and speaking into ourselves can move the needle in a way that often putting it out there for others to see doesn't. And this is what I hope for everybody here, that you can keep a hold of your dreams, feel resistant, resilient to the disappointments that we feel so often come and hit us in the world around us. 
and that those disappointments don't steal our hope and our passion to keep pushing forward for the world we hope to see. That we, like the Israelites, can push forward, keep building, keep fighting, and keep pushing. Not out of a sense of shame or obligation, but out of a sense of desire and hope. Because living out of desire and hope is a life that is full, a life that is connected, a life that feels alive. And I believe that's what Jesus has for us. And I also believe that I'm not the only one here that feels like their hope at times is stolen from them. I also believe that I'm probably not the only one here that feels disappointed when they look around the world. You know, the number one thing I feel like I've experienced in my time of setting aside time in prayer in 2020 has been this. It's the reason I'm doing this whole series. It's because I want to feel hopeful. I don't want to look at the data around me and just see the things that tells me I'm being naive and silly. I want to see the data around me that says, oh, keep pressing, keep going, keep doing this. Hold on. There is good And I desire for all of us to have that. I desire for us to have dreams ignite within us. I desire for us to feel passion. I desire for us to feel resilient when the world feels like it's beating us down. And so to that end, I actually just want to pray for us now. So if you want to stand with me, I want to pray. Jesus, we're going to invite the band up here, and they're going to play for us here in a moment. I invite you to engage in whatever way feels most appropriate to you right now. If you want to sing along, dance, clap, like get your inner like sweet Caroline on and jam with them, go for it. I think that's like an awesome human experience that we get at baseball games and at church. That's it. <laughs> the occasional Christmas carol experience. It's good. Or if you're in a place that you just want to sit back, let music hit you. Let it kind of like roll over you and bring you into a space of like prayer or meditation. Go for that too. Our goal is for this space to be a support for whatever's happening with you. And another support that I have found really helpful is other human beings. We have people that are super uh, just kind, wonderful people that are a part of our prayer team, and they're available in that middle section. If you want to go over there, um, they just come alongside you, and they'll pray with you about whether you have a physical need, emotional need, anything going on, that it just feels helpful to have another person brought into that. And we have found that God tends to show up in pretty surprising ways when we take that step. So throughout this whole process, please feel free to go find those. They'll have a lanyard with a thing that says prayer team. And Jesus, with that, I ask right now, I first ask for some healing, consolation in the disappointments I have felt. Just if anybody in this room is aware of feeling disappointed, disappointed either, I don't know, in the institutions around them, disappointed in the world, the things that we see going on in the news, disappointed with the relationships around them, just feeling disappointed. I just ask right now for some healing. 
that we understand that we can't be in a life that doesn't experience disappointment, but that doesn't mean that disappointment doesn't truly wound us. And I ask right now that you would bring consolation, hope. And even if there's ways that there's uh, lies that have found root around that disappointment, like the reason that was so disappointing is because of you. The reason that's so disappointing is because you didn't live up to what you were supposed to be. The reason this is so disappointing is because you fall short in some way. I just call out those lies and ask that they would fall away. And Jesus, I pray in this moment that you would both ignite new and reignite old dreams. Dreams for what our life could be, dreams for what the world around us could be, dreams that fill us with hope and passion. And in the way that Haggai speaks of the past, talking to them like Israelites, remember how you were taken care of. Remember how things went when you were freed from Egypt. There's more of that in the future. I ask right now for any of us that we would find ourselves remembering past victories, remembering past experiences where it felt like there was a difference being made. Remember past experiences where we felt like the things were breaking through and that you would use that to ignite more hope within us for the future. and protect us from the ways that is often stolen from us. Pray in your name, amen.